Saga Briefs, where we're talking about the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And today we're returning to a favorite topic in the Saga Briefs, the legends surrounding the family of Ragnar Lothbrok. Right, this is our fifth episode dedicated to the web of history, mythology, and literary traditions that inform the ongoing History Channel series Vikings, centering on the stories of Ragnar Shaggy Pants, Scourge of the North. Scourge of the North? It's our fifth one of these. We've got to keep people interested. Well, if you haven't heard our previous conversations about Vikings before this, shame. We've cov- shame on you. We've already covered the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok. Right. Now, that was episode seven of the regular podcast. We uh, we hadn't quite figured out our numbering system yet. Yes, it was pre-Saga Briefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did Saga Brief 3, Kraukumau, or the Song of the Raven. Mm-hmm. Now, supposedly Kraukumau was composed by Ragnar as he lay dying in the snake pit of the Northumbrian king Alla. Mm. And then last year, we covered the story of Rollo the Viking, founder of the line of Dukes of Normandy, who would eventually become the kings and queens of England. Right. That was Saga Brief 5, right? That's right. Um, And don't forget, we also covered the Blood Eagle back in our very first Saga Brief. Uh, That one was at least tangentially related to the Vikings. You're right. Now, that one was inspired by a Vikings episode appropriately titled Blood Eagle. I believe (laughs) Ragnar administered the gruesome but likely fictional execution technique on Jarl Borg. Yes, there you go. So we've done Vikings-related briefs four times already. Is there really anything we haven't covered? (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, honestly, as long as they're making this show, we'll have topics to tie into its narrative. And this time out, we're taking on the Ragnarsons. Ah, yes, the Ragnarsons. Mm -hmm. But it's worth noting we have talked about them before. They were in Ragnar Saga. No, 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 sure. Bjorn Ironsides, Ivar Boneless, Sigurd Snake in the Eye, they were in the saga. But what about Fridleif, Ube, Dunwat, Dunwat. Havdan, Hauston? We're taking on all the Ragnarsons. Dunwat? <laughs> okay, now I can see doing an episode on the major players like Bjorn, Ivar, Ube, uh, and Hvitserk, but... Why all the Ragnarsons? Mm. I mean, there's a reason the show only uses five of them. And why does a mountain climber climb mountains? Why does a woodchuck chuck wood? Why does the Pope poop on a Catholic bear in the woods? Wait, wait, wait. I know this one. Look, if we weren't completionists, we wouldn't be academics. How's that for an answer? That's better and, and more honest anyway. Well, <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, this is going to be such a project that we've already decided it's going to have to be two episodes. Two episodes. You don't think we can do this in one episode, huh? No. No, there really <laughs> are a lot of these Ragnarsson guys. Uh-huh. And if I'm being honest, we could do a whole episode on Ivar the Boneless alone. <laughs> How about we do three episodes on the Ragnarsson's No, challenge? no, no, no. Uh, didn't this used to be a podcast about the Icelandic sagas? Huh? I vaguely remember doing those. Yeah, I vaguely recall that. Uh, it's been a while. <laughs> now, the last few episodes, honestly, they've been a bit of a palate cleanser. And we are halfway through the sagas of the Icelanders, so we figured it's a good time for a short break right. to explore other interests. Right. Actually, this is a good time to mention that we're going to be returning to the sagas with the utterly bizarre saga of Ref the Sly. There you go, noble listeners. If you're hoping to read ahead, there's a little New Year's homework for you. Mm-hmm. It's available in Penguin's comic Sagas and Tales of Iceland, uh, if you're interested. Um, I'll include a link to it in the show description, though uh, I don't think there are a lot of copies out there. Right. Well, you've got time to find the book and read it. Uh, we're doing two episodes on the Ragnarsons here, so that'll take us uh, some time. Our first one will be a tour through the stories of all the Ragnarsons who aren't on Vikings. 
Ooh, just what every fan wants to hear. <laughs> well, th- but then our second episode will offer a little more depth for the core group from the show. Ah, that's more like it. Mm. Now, in that episode, we'll be looking at Ivar the Boneless, Bjorn Ironside, Ube, and Hvitserk. It's going to be great. Yeah, but before we get to the meat, we got a whole lot of appetizers to get through. <laughs> Sadly, you are right. <laughs> Ragnar Lothbrok was a very busy boy. There are a lot of minor Ragnarsons out there. So, well, I mean, don't worry. This is going to be good times. Uh, if you say so. Now, <laughs> to be fair, John did most of the research for this episode, so he's got a much better idea of what's coming than I do. Um, so why don't you start by talking about how you even came up with the definitive list to discuss? I mean, it isn't a matter of just reading a saga and then talking about it. There mm-hmm. are a lot of different versions of the Ragnarsson stories and nearly as many different lists of brothers. Now, I'm right. just covering the major brothers for the next episode, and my head is spinning with all the variations. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the fact is the exact significance of the patronymic name Ragnarsson is very much up for debate. Uh, Ragnar himself is about as much myth as reality in his stories, and his sons yeah. are at least as sketchy. We know a fair amount about them, but I mean, well. Well, what, what, what we know about them isn't definitive. Yeah. Uh, different texts give us different lists of Ragnarsons, and we have the usual problem that few sources are actually from the Ragnarsons' own time. Right. Uh, most of the sources that talk about them are written hundreds of years after the fact. Right, which is actually why I'm interested in talking about this. The Ragnarsons are attested in contemporary accounts, but mostly from their attacks in other lands. That's true. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, for example, mentions them. Right, and so does the life of King Alfred of Wessex. Uh, and some chronicles from the continent do as well. But the major sources, the ones that go beyond just mentioning two or three Ragnarsons by name, uh, those are pretty far removed from the original story, whatever that original story was. Right. So we're talking about like Ragnar's saga, the tale of the Ragnarsons, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, Saxo Grammaticus's Gesta Denorum, mm-hmm. which has an entire biography of Ragnar Lothbrok that reads like an attempt to iron out all the different versions of the father-son legends. Uh, we didn't spend any time on the Gesta Denorum in our Ragnar episode, but Book 9 is all about Ragnar's conquest of the Northern Sea world. Right. Now, that's a big one. Uh, we'll be talking about that a lot today. And there's a handful of other texts we'll be dipping into as well. When you put all this information together, the result is it's a little messy. Yeah, we know so little that we aren't even sure that Ragnarsson is even a real patronymic. Mm-hmm. It's possible that Ragnarsson was a name various Viking raiders claimed for themselves to add to an air of menace. Right, the dread uh, pirate Ragnarsson. <laughs> yes, and at least one of the Ragnarssons we, at least one of the Ragnarssons we'll be talking about today is widely regarded as a deliberate fake, a man who claimed the status of a Ragnarsson. Right, so we know almost nothing. Well. I mean, we can make some educated guesses. Yeah, I, yeah, but I do feel like we're stepping further and further out onto the thin ice here. Yeah. Maybe we should have had this conversation before we started recording. <laughs> ah, it's too late, John. We're already in. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, I don't think we have to be certain about the Ragnarsons to have some fun with their stories. That's also why I don't lose a lot of sleep over most of the liberties the show Vikings takes with the sagas. They're not doing anything with the legends of the Ragnarsons that medieval storytellers weren't already doing. I think that's a great point. Uh, now, as Ben Wagner has said, right, the, the stories of Ragnar and his sons are very much a patchwork, a dimly visible historical core covered by a mass of folk tales and legends. Yeah, and, and, and that can even come down to who is or isn't a Ragnarsson. Absolutely. Right? But one of the weirder subplots of the show over the last couple of seasons was the minor character of Magnus Ragnarsson, mm-hmm. the kid whose mother claimed that he was the son of Ragnar Lothbrok. And last we heard, that turned out to be a false claim, and the kid was... 
was kind of unceremoniously sent off. <laughs> yeah, he was. Into the mist. With a, with a, with a little backpack. <laughs> yeah. a, a dog like, at his heels kind of thing. Poor kid. Um, and, and it's true. There, there's no Magnus Ragnarsson anywhere in the legends that, that we could find. Right. But the um, only name but, you don't find. Yeah, but right. But claims about parentage in the medieval north can can be rather difficult to nail down with any certainty. Right. And for obvious reasons, that's uh, more likely to be the case for paternity than maternity. Can you explain why? I don't understand. <laughs> well, Andy, when a man and a woman love each other very much, uh, uh, okay, <laughs> they make uh, a Ragnarsson. Nine months later, the Ragnarsson is born to the mother, but oh, Ragnar yes. has long since gone away on his ship. Are we sure that the father isn't Odin in disguise? Well, or perhaps one of the many people running around claiming to be Ragnar. <laughs> yes, John, but but when the author of the Swedish King says something like one of the Ragnarsons died in the army of his brothers, mm-hmm. there, there's kind of an ironic twist to the right. words, isn't there? I mean, the brothers command an army, but there's also just a lot of these brothers. And in some ways, entire raiding companies do seem to take up the mantle of the Ragnarsons. Actually, literally, once they all begin marching under the Ragnarsons' raven banner. So, as we're going to see, there may not literally be an army of Ragnarsons, but when you put all the sources together, there's at least a very respectable platoon there. <laughs> um, that depends entirely on where we look to build our list of Ragnarsons. Right? The, the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok lists seven sons of Ragnar, two with Thora Fortress Heart, five with Aslog Sigurd's daughter. Saxo Grammaticus lists 11 sons and two daughters. Three with Lagertha, two with Thora, one with the daughter of Earl Esbern, three with Svanloga, and four others whose parentage is uncertain. Then other texts, like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, only mention three or four altogether. And I found one website that actually claims evidence for 68 total children of Ragnar and his various wives and other partners. Oh, come on. That's clearly an outlier. Yes. I mean, the text might support a number somewhere between six and 12 total children. Yeah. But 68. I know. I might edge it up slightly from six to 12, but yeah, more or less, that's right. So what do you think? Well, there's a deeper problem mm-hmm. than that, is what I think. It's not like these stories are all about the same Oh, people. no, no. Yeah, no. They're remarkably inconsistent. Um, Eric Ragnarsson might be a loyal commander of Ragnar's troops or a traitor to his father. Eh. Ivar might be an impaired man a shapeshifter, or an able-bodied and exceptionally cruel Viking. or Potentially an impotent one. Right. Uh, Ube might be a treacherous, illegitimate Ragnarsson, or a Frisian Earl with no family connection to Ragnar at all. No, of course. Now, for me, the, the <laughs> variety of traditions is the interesting part, though. Mm-hmm. These brothers, and for the purposes of the conversation, we're going to call them brothers here, mm-hmm. are and For were- any man, no matter how is my brother, whoever sheds blood with me this day will right. be my brother. What I'm trying to say is they they were and are an enigma. Mm-hmm. Uh, writers and historians were working to piece together knowledge about them or inventing them, perhaps, uh, mostly from reputations and stories. Mm. But they were reliant on interpretations built on interpretations. Yeah. And corroborating anything in this is going to be nearly impossible. Yeah. As soon as you scratch the surface of a Ragnarsson's legend, you find several different versions of his story. And sometimes several different people. <laughs> yeah, that too, sure. Uh, enough chatter. Since we're starting off with the lesser-known Ragnarsons, I think it's time for... The Ragnarsson Lightning Round. The Ragnarsson Lightning Round. Yep. Um, Ragnar's so legend that? just kept expanding, and as it grew, it kept iterating on the idea of his children. So we end up with lots of figures 
who may or may not have been sons of Ragnar Lothbrok, being reported in one source or another as members of Team Ragnarsson. Okay, so these are the not-ready-for-prime-time Ragnarssons. Essentially. But if we're going to talk about them, we're also going to have to be careful about the ones who are really just different versions of the guys we've already talked about. Well, to the degree that we can. Yeah, I mean, there, there's an, a fair amount of speculation here, to the point that I'm not even sure this is worthwhile the more we talk about it. I mean, <laughs> why are we starting with a lightning round, and why are we doing this at all? Way to sell the bacon. Uh, we're doing it because we can, Andy. All right. So uh, how is it all going to work? Well, I'll name a Ragnarsson and we get a few minutes to talk about him. A few minutes. Let's say three minutes. Three minutes. Come on. Five. Not more than five. Have we ever talked about anything in less than five minutes? I mean, we're still in the intro. Ten. Ten minutes or less. <laughs> well, I'm hoping for three, but let's see how it goes here in the express lane at the uh, the Ragnarsson supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, who's first, John? Uh, well, I think since we're splitting the Suns into two groups, we should probably start with the only controversial choice we have to make. Oh, a controversy. Love it. Sigurd, snake in the eye. I know this guy. So, uh, what's the, yeah. what's the controversy here, John? Well... I I suppose this is only controversial for people who have actually been watching the show Vikings. Uh, Sigurd Ormialga, or Sigurd Snake in the Eye, was actually on the show from seasons two to four. Yes. uh, He's Mm -hmm. the brother who was abruptly axed at the end of season four, right? Right, which is pretty much all you need to know about the modern version of Sigurd. The medieval version is far more interesting. Well, for starters, his birth is kind of unusual. Yeah. Do you want to explain this? Well, in Ragnar's saga, Sigurd is the fifth and the youngest son of Auslog and Ragnar. Mm -hmm. And his birth has huge implications for the saga. Up to the point when Auslog is pregnant with Sigurd, she has continued to hide under the nickname Krauka, or Raven, which is the name her evil adopted parents gave her after they stole her from her guardian. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, she's been married to Ragnar for at least 20 years at this point. Their oldest son, Ivar, is an adult, and his brothers are all teenagers. And while Ragnar certainly got to know his wife in the biblical sense, mm-hmm. it seems that he didn't really invest the time to <laughs> get to know her as a person. No, no, not at all. He has no idea that she's not Krauka of humble origin. She's Aslaug, the lost daughter of Sigurd Fafnisbane and Brunhild of Volsunga Saga fame. You'd think that might be the sort of information that would come up at some point in a 20-year marriage. You would think so, but uh, it, it appears she can keep a secret. <laughs> yes, she can. I don't know why she wants to, but uh, <laughs> it's kind of like the joke about the monk who breaks a 20-year silence to complain that his food is cold. Oh, uh, yeah. Why didn't you say anything in all this time? Everything was fine before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's, there's a reason for Aslog to reveal herself now. Yes, uh, Ragnar's friends have convinced him to get engaged to a princess, Ingeborg, uh, the daughter mm-hmm. of King Eystein of Sweden. Uh, now, they don't think that Krauka, who's from a poor family with no connections, is really the kind of worthy wife a man of Ragnar's stature deserves. Mm. So, Aslog reveals her lineage in order to stop Ragnar from leaving her. Yes, essentially, she, she tells him, uh, You know that I am pregnant. On that child will be a mark which will look like a serpent lying in the child's eye. 
and somehow that proves that she is the daughter of Sigurd mm-hmm. Fafner's bane. Yeah, it's probably best not to examine that logic too closely. <laughs> well, it's a snake in the eye, and he mm-hmm. killed the... Yeah. Uh, yeah. The point is, she's right. The baby's born with a serpent image in his eye, mm-hmm. um, and Ragnar finds this highly convincing. Somehow. And maybe she had one of those 3D um, sonograms before... There you go. You know, and they, they looked at it really closely, <laughs> and she's like, I gotta explain this somehow. <laughs> Probably not. Right. And, and so the child is named Sigurd for his grandfather, the, the dragon slayer. Kind of cool. Right. Right. And that's one hell of a legacy to have to live up to. Yeah. Sigurd as a grandfather, Brunhild as a grandmother, and Ragnar as a father. Yeah. But young Sigurd's up to the challenge. Mm-hmm. At the age of three, he persuades his brothers to help their mother avenge their half-brothers, Eric and Agnar, with this verse. It will take us three nights. If you are troubled, mother, far must we brothers travel. For our forces to be ready. I'm sorry, this is the first time I'm reading this. <laughs> Does it can you tell? <laughs> no, I cannot. <laughs> it will take us three. It nights. is extremely convincing. <laughs> <laughs> it will take us three nights if you are troubled, mother. Far must we brothers travel for our forces to be ready. If Blade Edge aids us, A stain the king shall not hold Upsala's high seat. Though he offers hoarded wealth. Right. Three years old, the magic number for precocious youth in the sagas. Yep. And Sigurd's career is certainly that of a man with a destiny shaped for him. He turns out to be something of a troublemaker, but an exciting one. Now, he's got that snaky gleam in his eye, but I have to take issue with something you've said here. Really? Yeah, the text I read doesn't say anything about Sigurd being born with a serpent in his eye. How dare thee. Uh, and, <laughs> and what text dares to contradict the most plausible saga of Ragnar Lothbrok? Uh, nothing less than the Gesta Denorum of Saxo Grammaticus. Oh, okay. Well, carry on then. That's right. I, I trump your deuce. <laughs> uh, Saxo doesn't attach much significance to Sigurd's birth. I... He's just listed as one of several brothers born in a span of a few years, along with uh, Bjorn, Agnar, and Ivar. When Sigurd is in his teens, he and his brothers accompany Ragnar and Lagertha in a battle against the Scanian and Jutish peoples of southern Sweden. The two armies meet at Linnaeus Field. Uh, it means woolly field. Was there a woolly bully on that field? Woolly bully. <laughs> oh, a woolly field, though. Uh, is, mm-hmm. is it a sheepfold, maybe? Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't think so. Uh, it seems to be a misunderstanding of a local place name. The the Norse is Ulleracre, uh, which could be Woolacre, which does sound slightly sheepish. Uh, <laughs> but it probably refer, refers to Ulleracre in Uppsala. Oh, that's right. Ull's land, as in uh, the god Ull. Right, exactly. Now, that's a whole other digression. And this is probably the site of an assembly, possibly one where people swore on Ull's ring. But the point is that Ragnar and his family are successful in their attack, and Ivar in particular shones, 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 uh, shone bright. The point is that Ragnar and his family are successful in the attack, and Ivar in particular shows signs of his future greatness. But Sigurd is badly injured in the battle, and is found after the fight face down and dying of his wounds. Probably dying on a pile of sheep turds, if I'm... No, it's... it's <laughs> It's, it's not that kind of field, I'm telling you. Oh, okay. Uh, Sigurd is brought to some local healers who can't do anything about his injuries. But then Sigurd receives a visitor. I'll just read from the text here. 
A certain man of remarkable size came then, and approached Sigurd's bed, and promised that he could rejoice and be whole once more, if he promised to consecrate to the man the souls of all those Sigurd defeated in battle. The huge man did not conceal his name, but said that he was called Rostar. Now, Rostar is a pretty clear stand-in for Odin. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this is a dangerous deal. There's a reason why people generally tried to keep Odin at uh, at arm's length. Mm-hmm. He wasn't necessarily the nicest of gods for people, and uh, and any deal made with him tended to be to his advantage. Well, I mean, sure, but Sigurd's dying. What has he got to lose? I don't know. Let's talk to Faustus about that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, but Sigurd is hardly Faustus, and Odin's not exactly Mephistopheles either. And from Sigurd's perspective, this is the best offer he's going to be given. So he agrees to Rostar, or Odin's terms. Sure, sure. What could go wrong? Well, he's immediately healed. No, that's a good deal. Yeah, it is. But before Rostar wanders off, he pours dust or sand into Sigurd's eyes. Ah, so Odin's a beach bully now. (laughs) No. Uh, Those who witness the moment swear that the dust forms clouds that look like miniature serpents over his eyes. It's interesting. So it's uh, the the sand scrapes his uh, eyes and scars them. I, I guess, although it really just seems to be over his eyes. Like, it's sort of the cloud rises above his face. Because he's laying in bed, remember? Yeah. Uh, huh. So an old woman sees the serpents and is so horrified that she faints. Hmm. And Saxo says that these serpents are a sign that Odin singled Sigurd out to be a man of exceptional cruelty. And oh. that, he concludes, is how he got the name Snake Eye. All right. Now, that's a slightly cooler story, but... Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's also way more sinister. Mm-hmm. Now, Saga Sigurd was a cute little kid who who kind of went on to become a successful warrior and leader and had a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. Now, this version sounds like he just made a deal to become Odin's personal executioner. Yeah, I think it's about right. Um, so from this point on, Sigurd is mostly an independent operator. He's given charge of parts of Scotland and occasionally sails to his father's aid over the next few years. But he doesn't really take up a major role again in Saxo's text until after Ragnar's death. Now, meanwhile, in the sagas, he's treated as a much younger boy, Mm -hmm. Uh, still the precocious lad who recites poetry and sails with his brothers and his mom. Uh, But in both texts, the turning point comes when they find out about Ragnar's death in the English Mm -hmm. snake pit. Yeah. Now, remind us what Ragnar's saga says about that. Well, it says that the four brothers, Bjorn, Fitzerk, Ivar, and Sigurd, are all together when they get the news. Now, Sigurd and Fitzerk were playing a Hneftafel game, Mm -hmm. and they both stopped playing to hear the news. Fitzark had just taken one of Sigurd's pieces, and he, as he listens, he gripped the piece so hard that his fingers ruptured and blood spurted out from them. Oof. And Sigurd, who was cleaning his fingernails with a knife, stabbed his finger so deeply that his knife stuck in the bone. Mm. But, the saga author says, he didn't notice and didn't flinch. Now that's Ragnarsson myth-making at its best right there. Uh, now on... On the other hand, Saxo says... Wait, wait, Sigurd- what about Ivar, who sits there all chill and well, sets the plan? we're not Ivar and- right now. All right, fine. <laughs> Next episode, people. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Saxo tells us that Sigurd was so overcome upon learning of his father's death that he plunged the spear he was holding deep into his own foot. Clumsy. For he wished to hurt some part of his body severely, that he might the more patiently bear the wound in his soul. Oh, that's poetic. By this act, he showed at once his bravery and his grief, and bore his lot like a son who is afflicted yet steadfast. 
Mm. I guess you are steadfast once you pin your foot to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Not going anywhere. Wow. No, that's really, really nice. Mm -hmm. Kind of poetic even. It is. Um, A a bit more emotive also. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess really isn't surprising. I mean, Saxo is consciously imitating classical epics in his narrative. Mm -hmm. And the idea of manful displays of grief fit into that. True. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mm. Sigurd and his brothers at at that point set out for England and for revenge. We're going to be covering the story of the great heathen army in our next episode. So for now, we don't need to say a whole lot about the raid. Yeah, well, we we should talk about the actual death of Alla. Uh, Okay, but just do it briefly. Well, we're trying to stick within our (laughs) three-minute guideline here, aren't we? Yeah, we we said, what did we say, five minutes? It's it's only been like two so far, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, uh, well, different texts credit different sons with the actual killing and blood eagling of King Ella. Right. Now, blood eagling we've covered on the podcast before, as we said. This is the practice, or at least the literary dramatization of a practice, in which a victim's back was carved open and eventually everted, causing a gruesome death. You don't hear the word everted very often, do you? Well, you don't cut people's backs open very often. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, now, not all texts do say that uh, King Ella was blood-eagled. Uh, some, including the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, seem to suggest that King Ella died in battle against the Ragnarsson's army. Yeah, but the ones that do mention the blood-eagle torture seem to revel in the gory details. Absolutely. Yeah, we decided that we don't buy this uh, blood-eagle as a historical fact, mm-hmm. but but yeah, as a literary device, it's powerful. It's an assertion of a son's revenge for the father's death. Yep. And, and although some texts say that it was Ivar who killed King Ella, others say that Sigurd and Bjorn were responsible. Mm-hmm. Either way, Sigurd doesn't stay in England for too long. He's elected ruler of Ragnar's Scandinavian lands, including parts of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, and off he goes. Right. So we're agreed. Some of our best sources say Sigurd was responsible for Ella's death. I'm going to say yes, although I feel mm-hmm. like you're setting me up for something here. Well, it's a strange thing, because Sigurd doesn't return to Scandinavia by himself. The Ragnarsson's Thouter, Sven Augustin's Bravest Historia Regum Dacie, uh-huh. and Saxo all agree that Sigurd brings a new wife with him back to Scandinavia. Mm. Mazeltoff. <laughs> Best wishes to the happy couple. Her name is Blaya. Sure it is. Well, she can't help that. I mean. <laughs> um, and she's the daughter of King Ella of Northumbria. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> That, well, that's a little awkward, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly raises a few questions. <laughs> Think of the wedding night. Um, now, well. <laughs> my first question is whether Blaya is uh, voluntarily entering into a wedded bliss with Secret yeah, Stinky Eye. Yeah, with the guy who may have tortured her father to death. I mean, yeah. it's, it's hard to imagine. Uh, but sadly, our questions have to remain questions. You don't think she approached him after the blood eagle and said, I saw the way you handled that knife. I- I've never seen a man carve up a- right. my father quite like that. I never liked my father much. Uh, yeah, none of the sources really explain how this marriage works. So it's hard to make any assumptions. Mm. Uh, she may have just had a very poor relationship with her father, which is possible. Uh, or marriage, she was seized by Seagirth and taken. Right. That's the know. other possibility. Absolutely. Seized and taken are really the same word if you think about it. They are actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, the marriage does seem fruitful, though. Happy or not, it's very fruitful. But we'll get to mm-hmm. that in a second. So uh, Seagirth is the successor to Ragnar's lands then? Some of them. Uh, wow. The core lands, really. Uh, the ones around the North Sea. See what Vikings he, is missing out on? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. He, I, I, why you would get rid of this character? I was shocked. Uh, you should have killed Feetzerik. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) 
But he does have a. Uh, we'll see in the next episode. I mean, he has a. If role you to felt play. the need to kill any of them, which wasn't actually a requirement, you just look for the uh, guy with the with the worst right. mustache. I mean, you could have killed Magnus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Sigurd also later inherits another group of lands after the death of his brother Havdan, uh, who, by the way, may be Hvitserk. Uh And after that, Sigurd more or less settles down. Yes, and after all that buildup with evil eyes and Odin's bargain mm-hmm. and everything, Sigurd turns out to be the one brother who more or less retires. Weird yeah, for Ragnarsson. I- yeah, he's a bit of a washout as Odin's uh, personal avatar of chaos, isn't he? Yeah, he's content to govern the lands he's got. Um, you got you got the quote from Saxo here? Yeah, I do. Yeah, um, here it is. Uh, Sigurd ceased to be a man of camps and changed from the fiercest of warlords into the most punctual guardian of peace. Punctual? <laughs> <laughs> Gets everywhere right when he's supposed to. Yeah. Um, he's like a wizard. He arrives exactly when he means to. Uh Fortune so favored his change of pursuits that no foe ever attacked him, nor he any foe. And so he died. And so he died. <laughs> I'm not sure what the Viking equivalent of a gold watch and a hearty handshake is, but that that's almost certainly not it. Well, I mean, in some ways, Sigurd's greatest contribution to the Ragnarsson legend is that he does settle down and raise a family. Yes, he and Blaya have three daughters and one or two sons. His descendants include famous Norwegians and Icelanders. I smell a genealogical <laughs> name dump coming. Just a little one. Just a little one. Let's uh, do it. Sigurd's daughter, Thora, is the mother of Olaf the White. Olaf marries Al the Deep-Minded. So all the prominent men and women of that line can claim Sigurd as an ancestor. Pretty cool. That's right. Which means basically mm-hmm. most of the important people in the southwest of medieval Iceland. Yep. Ah, that's uh, cool. And in addition to that, one tradition says that his descendants include a number of Norwegian kings. Of course. Including Harald Bluetooth, Sven Forkbeard, Sigurd Hart, and Knut the Great. Mm, that is an impressive list. But but I actually think you're underselling this a little. Underselling it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, look, <laughs> if Sigurd is the great-great-grandfather of Sven Forkbeard, he's the mm-hmm. direct ancestor of four English kings from Sven through Harthaknut. True. That's a good point. Yes, it is. Which means that Sigurd is the Ragnarsson whose family line completes the conquest of England begun by the great heathen army and the Ragnarssons in the ninth century. Mm. Now, how is Vikings going to accomplish that when they well, already right. killed this kid? Right. So they killed the kid off. Come on. <laughs> yeah. See, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's true. And that, that actually has another implication. The descendants of Olaf the White and Al the Deep-Minded include Thorstein the Red, Thord Yeller, Thorstein Kugason. Thorfinn Karlsefni, and Ari the Learned. Mm. And all of them are fourth or fifth cousins of the Anglo-Scandinavian kings of England. It's so nice. (laughs) That's the kind of thing that gets me excited. This is why we do this. To work out that Sigurd Snake in the Eye is a genetic nexus point for the North Sea Norwegian diaspora. Yeah, not bad for a guy who started his career by getting sand thrown in his face. (laughs) Charles Atlas, eat your heart out. (sighs) So that was two minutes, right? Three minutes? The two, like four tops. All right. Ronvald Ragnarsson. Wait a minute. We're, we're covering Ronvald? Yep. We know about Ronvald. We covered him <laughs> when when we talked about Ragnar Saga. Uh, There's not much to say here if I remember correctly. I know, but this is supposed to be a full tour. We have to at least include all the sons mentioned in Ragnar's actual saga. We'll 
This one we might actually hit our two to three wow. minute mark on. Well, we might. Uh, besides, I know it's crazy, but we have to entertain the possibility that not everyone remembers a brief discussion of a minor character from an episode we recorded nearly four years ago. <laughs> Slackers. <laughs> All right, then. Well, this is uh, a pretty straightforward story, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, the list of Swedish kings, which we mentioned earlier, sums up the life of Ronvald Ragnarsson in its usual unadorned style. Ronvald, Ragnar's fourth son by Auslog, fell in adolescence in the army of his brothers. Well, I mean, that's not fair. It's pretty fair. <laughs> if All right, let's... Let's at least give the kid his due. Yeah. Roenwald travels with his older brothers, Ivar, Halfdan, and Björn to Hütteber. He's a kid, so, I mean, he's a, you know, pre, like a tween. Uh, so he's left in charge of the ships while the others lead the raid. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the brothers' first raid, and they've chosen a doozy. The people of Hütteber have two magical bulls they unleash <laughs> on their enemies in battle. Always with those magical bulls. It almost is very Celtic, you know, <laughs> but uh, no one is a bigger fan of the magic bulls than I am, especially Apart from uh, the Celts, Sibelia. Uh, but uh, two magic bulls, mm-hmm. kind of overkill, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's it's not even enough kill, uh, as it turns out. Ivar shoots both bulls. Of course he does. And, mm-hmm, and the battle turns into a rout. Mm. Uh, Roenvald decides he wants to join in the fun, but when he charges into the enemy force... He's killed almost immediately. And so it goes. Mm-hmm. That's the story of Ronvald. Ronvald <laughs> is the lost Ragnarsson. He dies uh-huh. young without ever really having a chance to prove himself. Yeah, no, that's really his legacy and Toto. Uh, in most texts, he's not even mentioned at all. And when he is, he's too young to do anything of note. Saxo Grammaticus mentions him only once to note in passing that Ragnar doesn't bring him along on a raid in Sweden because he's not old enough. Yeah. And when he is mentioned, as he is in the Swedish Kings or in Ragnar Saga, he he dies in his first battle. Uh, yeah. 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 You know, I never really thought about it, but in that respect, the decision to kill off Sigurd Snake in the Eye on the show Vikings kind of captured that sense of wasted potential pretty well. Hmm. Sigurd is kind of that show's Ronvald. You know what? Don't start trying to excuse that. <laughs> I'm not excusing it. If anything, what I'm saying is that the show successfully recreated the completely unsatisfying narrative of a half-remembered figure. It's it's not a compliment. A half-remembered figure with an unsatisfying narrative. <laughs> well, it's it's not the greatest epitaph, Ronvold, but uh, <laughs> it's all yours. Sorry about that. And that was three minutes. <laughs> there we go. See? Our average is improving. Ulvi Ragnarsson. Um, pass. But what? <laughs> I'm gonna pass. Th- this isn't hundred thousand dollar pyramid, man. You can't just skip poor Ulvi and move on to the next one. No, I- I'm calling it. This one's bogus. <laughs> I don't know about that. It's a corruption of Ulvi, which means wolf, and. That is an alternate name for a different Ragnarsson. Mm-hmm. Or maybe this is a, a later scribal error. Whatever. Or, hear me out, it's some other guy. No. But <laughs> uh, let's just say for the purpose of this mm-hmm. experiment that it's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have time to go into every single one of these. Didn't you say there's somewhere between 6 and 68 children of Ragnar? Are you going to give well, me yes. 54 different Ragnarsons to no, go No, we're not here? covering all of those. Hey, well, how many are we covering? Eh, between 13 and 18, depending. Well, eight, 
18. I'm going to blow up my mic. Maybe 18. not. Maybe not. It's going to depend on how many we decide are actually different names for the same person. <sighs> then I vote no on Ulvi. <laughs> he doesn't need any discussion. We have day jobs, you know, and I've got uh, a family job. <laughs> all right, all right. Two dogs. When they dig up Ulvi's grave somewhere in Scotland in five years, you're going to feel very silly. But okay. <laughs> Ulvi, we hardly knew ye. Wait, we don't get anything about him at all? That's <laughs> what you said. <laughs> Who is he? Yeah, you can deal with the complaints from people. <laughs> Ulvi's family. When, when, the t- when the Twitter feed blows up with people complaining about Ulvi Ragnarsson being left out, direct your complaints to Andy Frager. Hmm. Houston Ragnarsson. Houston? Yeah. Did you say Houston? Mm-hmm. Is it Houston? Hostin? Hostin? Yeah, no, 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 no. What are we yeah, going with? Houston. As in Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> okay all right uh, well i remember this guy he's one of rollo's men right yeah, we talked good, about yeah. him uh, it's a little more complicated than that but yes uh Houston was one of the viking leaders at the siege of paris it's tricky mm. to say what his connection to rollo was because our frankish sources for the siege are notoriously confused about the command structure of the viking force why would that be well i mean you know there's also the fact that Houston turns on rollo later and ends up working with the franks as well he should well Okay, but uh, we, we didn't talk about him being a Ragnarsson in that episode, did we? No, uh, we didn't. And that's because it's entirely possible that he wasn't one. Or that he okay, was like he maybe wasn't. a family relation or possibly a retainer. Is this going to be another one of those fake people? Oh, no, 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 no. The problem with Houston is exactly the opposite. Oh, so he's too real. That's what you're saying. <laughs> no, no, okay. Look, I can explain this, but it's going to ruin our plan to cover these guys in a few minutes each. Uh, I think we already blew our time budget with Sigurd, so right. you might All as well. Right. Well, you'll go back and edit out our promises you want a separate- to be brief. <laughs> no, I won't. You want a separate <laughs> episode for this one? Or uh, gotta, no, 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 it? no, no. It's it's on your head. Uh, it's They can complain to you about the lack of Olvi and the too much Houston. Uh, now, right. what I was trying to say is that most of the people we're talking about are barely present in the sources, and so we're reliant on a couple of sagas and Saxo Grammaticus' Gesta Denorum for most of our information about them. Houston, on the other hand, is present in a wealth of sources. Uh, Dudo of San Quentin, uh, William of Jumege, uh, Asser's Life of King Alfred, the Annals of San Bertin, uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. Uh, he's uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's well known. Yeah, he's famous. He, he's infamous, which means he's more he's more than, than famous, than famous. Uh, in his <laughs> in his time. He was probably. I wonder if anybody even, gets no, that. <laughs> there's got to be at least a couple of the three, three amigos fans out there. I mean, if people like the Princess Bride, yeah, exactly. They must exactly. know that one. Um, so in his time, Same era. Houston may have been better known than Ragnar Lothbrok. Please substantiate that. Okay, I, I should put that a little differently. Uh, I think he's more widely known than Ragnar. Uh, okay. He's known in more places, and he shares Ragnar's talent for showing up in different places with remarkable speed. In fact, if that's true. Mm-hmm. Why isn't he in the Vikings show? Um, well, I mean, it does seem like they're kind of edging uh, Havdan the Black into that role. Oh, right? Because uh, remember that uh, Houston, one of his sort of big career moves is that he accompanies Bjorn into the Mediterranean. Oh, so it's yes. possible that they're kind of edging us into that move there. Uh, Interesting. So I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll tell us more we'll about see how this that guy. turns out. But uh, so. In at least one text, Houston is reported on being in both sides of the same battle. So we have to also consider the possibility that he's more than one guy, that this is multiple people being folded together. 
or he's pulling off the Picard maneuver. <laughs> I don't know if you're a Star Trek Next Generation guy, but uh, the Picard maneuver you see uh-huh. is when you, you use warp speed. <laughs> Go on. Now I'm going to give you all the rope you need to hang yourself on this one. <laughs> Can we move on? I desperately wish you would. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, can, you, can anyone tell the, that I'm not a Star Trek fan? <laughs> yeah, but you love Star Wars. I'll, I'll I'll hang Star Wars references all day long. I do not get Star Trek. Hmm. I'm sorry sad, because, to all you Trekkies because, out there. Trekkers, excuse of, me. One of the two actually, you know, tries to move our society forward. Yes. The and other the one other is actually pulls, realistic pulls and relevant. Hmm, I'm not sure about that. It's important to have the ideology of utop- futuristic utopias, but it's also important to have stories about fighting and resistance to the worst elements of humanity. I don't see how that's relevant. Uh, you don't see you know, <laughs> the situation we find ourselves in. Oh, no. In. Why would that be relevant? <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, I let's, no let's edge away from the political. Hmm. Now, um, a question about the, uh, mm-hmm. the you know, uh, Hostine showing up in multiple places mm-hmm. in the same battlefield. The the problem isn't so much with the source. It's it's with the the kind of thing that we find with the with the demands of honor, right? Maybe. So the the, the demands of honor and social ties can be complicated once a battle starts, right? Uh huh. Think about way back in Arabic Jasaga. Mm-hmm. Killer Stur, my devoted thing. Oh good. Killed one of Snorri Gothi's men, and then. When Snorri reminded him of their family connections, killed a man on his own side to even things up, right? Okay. So he's playing both sides. Yeah, no, I grant you that was a fun one. Um, the legal outcome of that, if I remember correctly, was that the killings offset one another, and so he wasn't responsible for either one. Uh, still one of my favorite legal decisions <laughs> in the sagas. Very right. brilliantly done by Killer Stuart. Yeah, no, this is more of a source problem. Uh, All right. So it's it's also testimony to Austin's fame. A number of scholars have tried to put together the story of Houston's life, but there's just no way to make them all fit together. Uh, Frederick Amory calls the evidence an exotic undergrowth of Scandinavian, Old French, and pseudo-classical fables. <laughs> an undergrowth? Yes. An exotic an undergrowth. Exotic how, undergrowth. How poetical. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, for brevity's sake, let's just – I, I want to dwell on that line, but <laughs> let's just cover his career. Uh, Frederick Amory's? No, Houston. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, all right. So uh, we're going to call Houston Houston throughout this section, but it's important to understand that he's got different names and different texts. He's called Hasting, Hodding, Houston, Halstein, and so on. Uh, um, John, yeah. when you teach history of the English language, uh-huh. I assume you you talk about the problems with spelling and pronunciation. Of course, yeah, absolutely. I I think if people are wondering mm-hmm. why this kind of thing happens. The answer lies in that, that that spelling conventions, pronunciation conventions, they weren't uh, standardized at that time. Right. They spelled what they heard or what they thought they heard. And so Mm -hmm. your your way of connecting letters to the writing of sounds might be different than someone else's. Right. And it's also if you think about the modern world and the way that dogs say different things in different countries – um, you get sort of the same idea that people who are hearing yeah. an unfamiliar sound are going to write it down the best they can. And every, each culture, each text, each writer is going to come up with their own way of writing that. Right. Now, uh, when I joined the Peace Corps and went, to, I was assigned to the Far East of Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most surprising 
it was there are a lot of things that were very surprising <laughs> about that experience but one of the things that shocked me when i first got there was that dogs mm-hmm. in russia don't say bark mm-hmm. they say goff 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 <laughs> yes they do <laughs> I like and that. we just chuckled back at the uh at the old Peace Corps right. headquarters, we just chuckled and chuckled about that. And you said, I only speak American dog. <laughs> I have no That's idea right. how to communicate yeah. with your animals. I had the hardest time communicating <laughs> with those dogs in, in Vladivostok. Right. Um, so aside from the problem with the names, right, and you're absolutely right, that the names are more about the, the ways that people try to write down a similar sounding name than about actual different names. Uh, mm-hmm. But Houston's claim to Ragnarsonhood is complicated. Uh, the basic issue is what do we do with Frankish sources that generally claim that he's a Dacian or a Dane or they don't identify him with Ragnar at all? Yeah, I mean, is that a problem? I mean, we know that Ragnar traveled extensively around the North Sea. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's consistent about him is his love of a good woman with huge yeah. tracts of land. Yeah, and I'd pretty much come to the same conclusion uh, that you know, no matter where he's from, he could still be a Ragnarsson. <laughs> right. uh, some sources do treat Houston as a friend of the family, especially of Bjorn Ironsides, and others do call him a Ragnarsson. Yeah. And for our purposes, we can probably consider him a member of the legendary clan, mm-hmm. whatever his true parentage might be. I like that's a it's a nice way of turning it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we're trying to stitch together a professional biography for this guy, we can start with a rumor that Houston was either outlawed from his homeland or chose exile. A 10th century monastic account says that Houston was a peasant's son who, overcome by a love of ambition, chose to become an outlaw. <laughs> Uh, another text that's calls him a century m- that's monk? my tenth century monastic monastic voice. All right. Uh, another text calls him a bad seed, and in general, he's treated as someone who's trouble right from the start. Now, some of that is obviously colored by the fact that most accounts of his career are written by his victims. Right. I mean, it's unlikely that they'd praise his sense of humor or his kindness to dogs. Right, no matter what the dogs speak. <laughs> uh, it's true. Houston uh, suffers seriously bad press. No, no. I mean, it's kind of interesting that he's treated as a markedly more cruel individual than someone like Rollo, who despoils the countryside of northern France and eventually mm-hmm. ends up owning a good-sized chunk of it because he said, well, I'll keep doing this if you don't give me right. some. Right, sure. Uh, but unlike Houston, Rollo ended up becoming an aristocrat in the Frankish world. His reputation was undoubtedly rehabilitated by his conversion to Christianity yeah, and by his title of Count of Rouen. Houston, on the other hand, sticks with being a raiding Viking. Shame. So there's never a reason to reconsider any harsh words about him. And he's a mightily nasty Viking at that, but uh, mm-hmm. one given to changing allegiances at the drop of a helmet. So probably. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, Houston's link to Bjorn Ironsides means that he also gets blamed for things they probably did together or that. Bjorn actually did without him. Uh, Dudo of St. Quentin's History of the Normans says that Houston burned churches and monasteries all over France, including Dudo's own monastery, by the way, um, and the Abbey of Saint-Denis, uh, and the Parisian Church of saint jean Well, that does sound like something a Ragnarsson might do. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is that most of those places were burned before Houston can be confirmed to even be active in France. You know what? I- Maybe I'm going to throw this out there. Mm-hmm. Maybe Houston's just keeping a low profile, speaking <laughs> softly and carrying a big flamethrower, as it were. 
<laughs> well, uh, modern scholars generally agree that Dudo is just plain wrong this time. Uh, but his colleague, William of Jumiege, uh, sets up an entirely different early career for Houston. He's a sort of advisor or consigliere to Bjorn, and that he's actually the brains behind Bjorn's famous trip to the Mediterranean. Now, that is more like it. Also probably not true. Sure, maybe, but <laughs> it's not true for much more interesting reasons. Uh-huh. <laughs> Go Houston's on. career is really a pastiche of Viking story tropes. He's mm-hmm. a church burner, an inland river raider, an explorer, a despoiler of both monasteries and exotic lands. So he he's a all. collection of stories with a creamy nugget center made of real Viking? Well, no. I mean, that makes him sound like more of a grotesque dessert, and he's, you know. <laughs> Soylent Dane? <laughs> no, okay. Let's take an example. Okay. In 860, Hausting yes. and Bjorn are said to have sailed as far as Luna in Italy. And besieged it under the false impression that it was Rome. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. Uh, and that part actually fits into the Ragnarsson's legends. Doesn't it? Yeah. Um, if you remember in Ragnar's saga, the brothers at one point were planning to attack Rome, but stopped because they had no idea where it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Haustein and Bjorn don't have a lot more luck. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll be talking about Bjorn's trip to the Mediterranean in more detail in this second episode, but we should point out that most of what happens on that trip is credited to Haustein by Norman writers. Dudo of St. Quentin says that it's Haustein's fault they ended up besieging the wrong city, but then credits the success of that siege to Haustein's trick. He mm-hmm. enters the city by pretending to be a convert to Christianity, die, and have his corpse brought into the city with a small group of armed pallbearers. Um, yeah, familiar. sounds familiar. Uh, we saw Ragnar do exactly the same gag in season three of Vikings to break the defense of Paris. Right. And again, credit to the uh, the writers of this mm-hmm. show who clearly are reading their history to yep. find ideas to, to you know for the show. Um, now, it's not an original idea to either of them, though. So no. even the writers of the Viking show and the writers of, of the histories um, mm-hmm. are all plagiarizing because yes. <laughs> Jan de Vries uh, also pointed out that same trick that it shows up in accounts of Bjorn Ironsides, but it also shows up in stories about Robert Guskard, Frodo of Denmark, Harold Hardrade, and King Frederick II. So, yeah. Uh, Saxo Grammaticus actually claims that Frodo pulls it off twice. Uh, it's a trope, right? It's an example of the cunning and untrustworthiness of the Vikings. Right. And since the Norman chroniclers treat Houston as the quintessential untrustworthy Viking, his career is built out of these literary motifs. And that, that speaks to absolutely. the difficulty of reading medieval histories. Yes, absolutely it does. Um, now, Dudo's story picks up sometime after Houston returns from Italy. The Franks are still terrified of him, and so they make peace with him by paying him off and giving him a gift of land. And it's a pretty major gift of land. Now, William of Jumiege uh, says that he's given the entire county of Chartres. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a lot. Uh, Dudo is less eager to go into the details, I think because it's pretty embarrassing for the Franks to have to pay him off like this. <laughs> yes, it is. But <laughs> it does mean that a couple of decades before Rollo takes Rouen, uh, there's already a county owned by Northmen allied with the Frankish crown. Yeah, and, and that comes up in some of the accounts. At one point, Houston agrees to act as a negotiator on King Charles's behalf with the invading Vikings commanded by Rollo. And Dudo's account of the opening of negotiations, I think, is worth reading. Uh, Andy, I'll be Houston, and you can be uh, the men of Rollo. Alrighty. 
Stop! The king's representative commands you to tell who you are, where you come from, and what you seek. We are Danes, brought hither from Denmark. We've come to conquer Francia. Under what title does your leader go? By none. We're all of equal authority together. Uh, uh, at whose behest were you sent here? Did, did you ever hear anything of a certain Houston who was born in your country and sailed here with a large host of men? Uh, we heard tell of him. A good fortune was foretold of him, and he began well. But a bad outcome in the end will be his lot. Yeah, nobody does snippy like Vikings do snippy. Yeah. Houston has a bit of Ragnar's need to be reassured about himself, doesn't he? Yeah. Do Rollo's men know they're actually talking to Houston? I don't know. I think so. But the text isn't really clear about it. Uh, Frederick Amory makes the case that this is Houston wanting to know whether his reputation is intact among the northern peoples. Uh, maybe even whether he's perceived as, as a successful man or not. Well, if so, he can't be happy with that response. Yeah. He, he's got a reputation... Well, you know, I mean, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. <laughs> oh, Oscar Wilde. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think there's a lot of overlap in the worldview of Oscar Wilde and your average <laughs> Viking, but uh, you may have just found the common ground, I guess. <laughs> That's why they pay me the big bucks. They don't pay uh, you anything. Yeah, I know. In the end, uh, there's a bloody battle between the two sides. Uh, Houston's Franks are defeated, but Houston himself escapes the field and his last scene in the text, running away and laughing cheerfully to himself. <laughs> now that is a saga move right there. Yeah, but do we dare to say it's a Ragnarsson move? Don't forget Ragnar's supposed death poem, the Krakumal. We struck with our swords. I've stood in the ranks at 51 folk battles, foremost in the spear meeting. Now on the high bench, boldly, I'll drink beer with the gods. Hope of life is lost to me now. Laughing, I shall die. It's definitely a quality of warriors in the sagas to act unconcerned in moments of peril. Uh, we can probably say it's one of the most admirable traits of a warrior, and so it shows up as a compliment to saga figures. No, that's quite right. Uh, the degree to which it also shows up in the stories of Ragnar and his sons doesn't tell us how exemplary they were as warriors. What it tells us is how greatly their stories became suffused with those literary devices of a tradition that privileged honorable and warriorly behavior, what the Norse speakers called drengskapr. Yeah, Ben Wagoner makes a point about Ragnar that his story is almost universally recognizable as a celebration of a certain kind of masculinity. Even in the Victorian era, Ragnar's poems were read and thought to have a Byronic quality to them. Huh. Well, that, now, it's interesting. Uh... Houston isn't necessarily one of the best examples among the Ragnarsons of honorable manly behavior, but again, no. we have to remember that we're relying heavily on the writings of people who had reasons to demonize him. Yeah, the elements of his character that come through do seem to suggest a man with a sense of honor, I think. Uh, a somewhat quirky sense of honor, maybe, but still, honor. Well, honor's a funny thing. And you're right, we, but we have to remember that honor and morality are not the same thing. Right. You can be an honorable man by the standards of saga writers without being sort of a moral man. Sure. Uh, not to mention that Houston, like, say, Rollo, is a figure whose character is in the eye of the beholder. Right. So we get Houston, the ravager and turncoat, but also the playful trickster who fools his way into fortified cities and laughs his way off a battlefield. Yeah. We have stories of Houston burning churches up and down the rivers of Francia, but also we get the story of Houston's horn. Oh, yes. Yeah. Explain that one. 
I, I have to credit Frederick Amory for this one. I wasn't familiar with the text it comes from, which is the 11th century Historia Eversionis Monasteris in Florenti Veteris. What? You weren't familiar with the, the Historia? For shame, John. <laughs> yeah, Historia. Uh, it's the history of the destruction of the monastery of St. Florentius the Elder. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like a good read, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it is. Uh, now, this story comes later in Houston's life when a monk dispatched to try to recover a ruined monastery, which uh, Houston or his men had despoiled, returns to the lost monastery. He clears away rubble and vegetation from the site, but then decides it would be wise to visit Houston and offer him gifts in exchange for the confirmation of Houston's protection of the monastery. Good idea. Yeah, you know. Uh, Houston kisses the monk on the cheeks in a sign of Christian peace and gives him the gift of an ivory horn, which he calls Thunder, which, if blown from within a monastery's walls, will warn any of Houston's men that the monastery is under his personal protection. See, now, you would have expected him to kill the monk for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is an unexpected story for Houston. It really is. Uh, Almery brings it up as part of an argument that Houston's story ends up being interlaced with elements of the Song of Roland. Hmm. I guess there's some merits to that, actually. There's a horn, right? Yeah, The politics of the region are so complicated in this period. So I don't think it's fair to think of the Vikings as clear stand-ins for the Saracens in the story. Right. It's really more story elements that are cropping up. And it's not hard to imagine that an 11th century writer in France who introduces a story of an important and named horn might have Roland's Oliphant in mind. Right. I mean, he almost has to. Right. Uh, Although I'm not so much interested in the rehabilitation of Houston's character that the story shows. I don't think it's really about him at all. I think it's about reasserting the monastery's claim to its own legal and spiritual sovereignty. Yeah. It's a it's a legal document, in other words. It's a story about how even a violent and tricksy Ragnarsson acknowledges St. Florentius's claim to the land and to the monastery. Yeah, I can see that as well. And there are a lot of texts like that. Um, okay, so now the, the final part of Haustein's story comes mm-hmm. when he arrives in England around 892 with a reputation as the lusty and terrifying old warrior of France. Har, har, har. Now, he engages in raids against King Alfred and spends four years capturing and losing strongholds in the southeast of the kingdom. At one point, he controls Milton in Kent, and he takes several villages in Essex as well. Now, ultimately, he isn't able to keep the lands he takes, uh, though in 896, he, he returns to France, where he finally, somewhere around the age of 80, which is very impressive, mm-hmm. disappears from the historical narrative altogether. Right. Yeah, it is impressive if we assume it's the same guy all the way through. Uh, yeah. But... As a mythical figure, in any case, it's quite a career. It really is. Now, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle includes an anecdote that I love in the middle of all this. At one point, King Alfred's army, this is uh, Alfred of England, has cut Houston's in half, and Houston is forced to negotiate to reunite his forces. Now, as part of those negotiations, Houston agrees to have his two sons baptized, and Alfred stands as sponsor to the older son. Well, well, well. Uh, which means, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, King Alfred was godfather to one of the grandsons of Ragnar Lothbrok. That's unbelievable in more ways than one. (laughs) Well, yes. Uh, But of course, it doesn't mean that Houston or his sons actually embrace Christianity or stop being a thorn in Alfred's side. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, most writers never try to rehabilitate Houston at all. The chroniclers mostly hate him, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dudo of St. Quentin's eulogy for Houston pretty much sums him up. This was a man accursed. Fierce, mightily cruel, and savage. (laughs) Hostile, somber, truculent, given to outrage, pestilent and untrustworthy, fickle and lawless. 
He was a death-dealing, uncouth man, fertile in ruses, a warmonger general, a traitor, fermenter of evil, and a double-dyed liar. So, uh, he's not a fan, then. No, I don't think he liked him. I'm sensing a definite chilliness there. Yeah. (laughs) Big on the thesaurus, wasn't he? Yes, he was. So, Halstein may be the longest-lived of all the pseudo-Ragnarsons, but he never really mellowed with age. No. All right, John, who's up next? Eric and Agnar Ragnarsson. Ah, great. Now, this is more like it. We're mm-hmm. back to the Ragnarssons attested in Ragnar Saga. Right, we are. But that doesn't mean that we're not still dealing with some strangeness. Right. Uh, according to Ragnar Saga, these are his firstborn sons, the children mm-hmm. of his first wife, Thora Fortressheart. Right. So should we have covered them first then? It's too late for that now, although you're the one that picked the order of these things. <laughs> well, I figure you'll just rearrange it however you want. No, nah, we'll just keep it. So, uh, besides, as we'll see later, it's not universally agreed that these two are Ragnar's oldest sons, so it doesn't oh, really matter where you put scandalous. them. Scandalous. Yes. Now, we told the story of Ragnar's marriage to Thora <laughs> back in our episode on Ragnar's saga, so why don't we just remind everyone of it now since it's been mm-hmm. a while. Sure. So it begins with Ragnar learning of a woman named Thora, the daughter of Jarl Herald, who is being held prisoner by a giant serpent. Yeah, it's all surprisingly fairy tale like It sure is, yes. And Herald's clearly read his Hans Christian Andersen because he knows Hans what's Christian Andersen. <laughs> okay. Is that from something? <laughs> it's a Mr. Science Theater reference. Uh, okay. Carry on. Anyway, he knows what's expected of him in this situation. Uh, he offers his daughter's hand to he offers his daughter's hand to anyone who can rescue her. Yeah, that pr- checks out. That's pretty standard. It is. Now Ragnar secretly dresses in tar stiffened clothes and mm-hmm. brings a massive spear with a loose head on it. He kills the serpent, and the tar trousers protect him from the monster's bite. Then he sneaks away, leaving the head of his spear in the serpent's wound. And later, the jarl holds a public forum to learn the identity of the man whose overly long shaft. Fits the spearhead. Right. And we really can't emphasize enough, although we've tried, uh, how <laughs> yes. phallic this entire thing is. I mean, it, it's act three of Cinderella, but with a man and his long shaft. And when Ragnar unveils his shaft. Excuse me while I whip this out. <laughs> oh, dear. He gains a wife and a nickname all at once. Yeah, you might want to rephrase that slightly. Uh, oh, no. oh, no. The nickname isn't about his shaft. Oh. It's about his stiff pants. Yeah, that's not a lot better. The, the tar, though. The pants oh. stiffened with tar. I see. So he becomes known as Ragnar Lothbrok, which can be translated as hairy pants or foul breeches. Mm-hmm. Uh, foul breeches. Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And he and Thora have two sons, Eric and Agnar. Uh, and then, sadly, Thora dies of an illness. All right. So we have two major sources for Thora's boys. Yeah. Thora and Ragnar. That's right. No. Two sources. No, no. <laughs> no, that's how babies happen, John. The two I I shun you. Uh, two literary or- sources is what I'm saying. Ragnar's uh, okay. saga, obviously, and the tale of Ragnar's sons. And this is where we see a bit of controversy about Eric and Agnar. Right, their actual story doesn't change much. They grow up and form a partnership, raiding together around Scandinavia with some success. Eventually, they run a run afoul of King Eistimbeli of Sweden. They fight a battle, but Agnar is killed and Eric is captured. So that entire story happens in both the saga and the tale. So wh- wh- where's the controversy? Well, the controversy is that in the saga, Eric and Agnar run afoul of Aistin after dear daddy Ragnar contracts a bigamous marriage to Aistin's daughter and then backs out of it. 
Oh, right. Now, Ragnar's men convinced him that his marriage to Auslog, mm-hmm. who he knows as Krauka, uh, the peasant's daughter, is well beneath him. Mm-hmm. Somehow he's been married to her for years and had three kids with her, and it's never really come up that she's the daughter of Sigurd Fafnisbane and Brunhild. Seems like the kind of thing you'd mention. Well, it's important to keep a bit of mystery in a marriage, I think. I mean, for example, I like to hide my wife's car keys when she's running late. <laughs> That's sweet. <laughs> yeah, she likes it. So as we said earlier, the misunderstanding between Ragnar and Auslog gets resolved when their next son, Sigurd, is born with that serpent in his eye. Right. Which somehow proves he's the grandson of Sigurd Fafnisbane. Right. Now, in that version of the story, Eric and Agnar are essentially stand-ins for their father, or maybe patsies for their father. Aestin can't take revenge on Ragnar directly, so he attacks the sons instead. In the Ragnarsons' thoughter, though, Eric and Agnar are in competition with Ragnar. Yes. In this version, Eric and Agnar have been seeking tribute from Ragnar's lands for themselves. Mm-hmm. So Ragnar sets up Aestin as his underking in northern Sweden with instructions to defend the land against the Ragnarsons if necessary. See, I really enjoy it when we get to see the intrusion of the storyteller's art into these narratives. You mean the, the, the those formal elements, the foreshadowing stuff? Yeah, well, that too. I mean, uh, I mean when we see a story being taken different ways from a common stock of elements. Ah, uh, if you remember when we read the Greenland sagas, right? there I was do. a cl- common plot point of a large ship's crew that was lost on one of the late expeditions. Mm-hmm. But in Eric's saga, that information gave rise to a tragic story about the risks of exploration when a ship sinks in the open ocean. In Greenlander's saga, it becomes the story of a mass murder when Freydis Eric's daughter slaughters 30 men and five women in order to monopolize the market for the wood she intends to bring home from the New World. Ah, Freydis. Mm-hmm. And, and all of that then fed into the broader anti-feminist themes of that saga, didn't they? Yeah. They turned yep. Freydis into a villain where she'd been kind of a hero, a brave woman in Eric's saga. Absolutely. Now, in both versions of this story, we have a relationship between Aestin and Ragnar that goes bad, and Aestin's daughter and Ragnar's sons are caught in the crossfire. Mm-hmm. But instead of the bigamy and betrayal storyline of Ragnar's saga, the Thouter version has Eric and Agnar attempting to strike a deal with Aestin behind their father's back. Treason? Treason against Ragnar Lothbrok? Treason's a strong word. Let's call it independently entrepreneurial. Yeah. Uh, They offer to make Aestin king under them instead of under Ragnar. And to sweeten the deal, Eric will marry Aestin's daughter, Borghild, so that Aestin's grandchildren will benefit from both families' wealth and status. Now, unfortunately, their entrepreneurial independence (laughs) turns out to be something of a bust. I mean, Aestin's advisors refused to support betraying Ragnar, and instead... Well, that's probably a good call. Yeah, maybe. But but instead, they advocate for attacking Eric and Agnar, which also isn't great. No. Uh, now, that's where the two versions of the story come back together. In both, Agnar is killed in the fighting, and Eric is captured alive. But Eric refuses to accept a settlement with Aestin. Instead, Eric chooses to die by impaling himself on a bed of spears. So cool. After Well, yeah, it is. After he speaks a verse, I won't take my brother's blood money, nor buy a maiden with rings. It's now said that Aestin has become Agnar's bane. My mother won't mourn me. I'll mount up above the slain. Let the ravenous spear shaft skewer me right through. Mm. That is the second most badass Ragnarsson death. Yeah, I mean, nobody can top Fitzerk, but it's still impressive. Uh, But I want to talk about the second part of that verse. He says, I won't take my brother's blood money, nor buy a maiden with rings. 
Right. Yeah, that's a reference to a bride price. Mm. In both versions of the story, Eric is offered Aistine's daughter as a peace price. And so his point is that he won't take any compensation offering, neither money nor a marriage alliance. Right. And because Eric chooses death, Aistine's now responsible for the deaths of two Ragnarsons. Uh, yeah, that's clearly not ideal. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, the rest of the clan sweeps into Sweden a year later looking for revenge. And despite Aistine owning his magic cow... Eric and Agnar are fully avenged when Aistine is captured and killed by the other Ragnarsons and their mother. You just can't resist getting the magic cows in there, can you? So many magic cows, and they're all so cool. Uh, So in the saga, we don't actually get much info about Agnar, right? Apart from his name, which is just a silly ripoff of Ragnar. Agnar Ragnarsson. Yeah, Yeah, that's quite a name. Did you say Uh, Ragnar Agnarsson? Yeah, sure. Uh, But other sources give us at least a sense of Agnar as an independent figure. Mm-hmm. In Saxo Grammaticus, Agnar is one of four sons of Ragnar, born to an unnamed woman or possibly women, along with Sigurd, Bjarn, and Ivar. Yes, and these are the heavy hitters of the Ragnarsons. And since when should we include Agnar in such lofty company? Well, it gets even better for him. Uh, as Saxo tells it, Agnar is among the sons who attack England at the head of the great heathen army. Not only that, but eventually Agnar is left in charge of England when the other surviving brothers return to Norway and Denmark. But the English are still resisting Ragnarsson rule. And so, this is Saxo now, Agnar, stung because the English rejected him, chose, rather than foster the insolence of the province that despised him, to depopulate it and leave its fields, which were matted in decay, with none to till them. <laughs> with the help of his brother Sigurd, he covered the richest land of the island with the most hideous desolation, thinking it better to be lord of a wilderness than of a headstrong country. Now, I can't remember if we've already said this, but we should explain that Saxo's version of history is often at odds with other sources. <laughs> yeah, so if you're listening uh, to this and clear. racking your brains trying to remember the dates for the reign of King Agnar of England, well, <laughs> you can go ahead and relax. <laughs> Yeah, I must have slept through that day in history class when they covered Agnar depopulating England. <laughs> no, no, he only massacred part of England. Uh, it's nothing. Could happen to a bishop. I see. Well, it is true that this period sees a fair amount of slaughter going on in England, but uh, I think we can say with confidence that no major English source credits Agnar with spilling lakes of blood in fits of petulance. It's just a little lake, Andy. Barely a pond. Just a, <laughs> just a, a puddle, really. Uh, Oh, and uh, Saxo makes one more significant change to Agnar's story. In his version of history, Eric dies first. And when Agnar hears of his brother's death in Sweden at the hands of a king, Alston, which is pretty clearly Aistine, he wished to avenge Eric, but while he was narrowly bent on avenging another, he squandered his own blood on the foe. And while he was eagerly trying to punish the slaughter of his brother, sacrificed his own life to brotherly love. What a good brother. Yeah. I mean, it really builds Agnar up as just a really strong, good character. It does. And I'm not entirely sure where it's coming from. I and mean, there's no particular reason in the source material for Saxo to care one way or the other about Agnar. Uh, maybe he's just using other sources or or he's kind of fallen for Agnar as a character. Possibly. But, you know, but otherwise, the story is completely back to front. Yeah. I mean, it'd be nice to be able to offer a definitive biography for each of these guys. But the sources just don't allow for us to do that. Uh, the mm-hmm. biography of a Ragnarsson is is more like an, an impressionist painting than a photograph, if you think of oh, it. Look at you, Mr. Metaphor. Mm. Uh, Mr. Simile, I should say. Um, what does come through in each of these stories is the bond between Agnar and Eric. All right, that's true. Uh, anything else we want to say about these two losers? <laughs> You're not impressed by that at all. Nope. <laughs> uh, well, there's a bit more to go on for Eric. Uh, for one thing, we do have a nickname alert. 
Uh, or really more than one, actually. Nicknames. I knew you'd eventually mm-hmm. work us around to that. Hey, you get your magic cows, I get my nicknames. Uh, to thine own self be true and all that. Okay. Uh, Eric is identified as Eric the Wind Hat or Eric Weather Hat in multiple chronicles. I, I wonder if it's because when he had to pass gas, he would always put his hat over his rear. Oh, oh, dear. No? It's well, a- <laughs> is it some kind of novelty war helmet or something? Right. <laughs> so if we shift to the highbrow, maybe it's like a highbrow Viking version of a, a who farted hat. What's the highbrow version of that? I don't, I don't know. Or is it more like Thor's winged helmet in the Marvel comics? Yeah, no, no. You, no you, I think you were right the first time. It's a it's a who farted helmet wrought in runic script. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I get lie. I would I would totally buy one of those and put it I on I can't lie. Else. You probably would. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, look at the blacksmiths working on that. See if we can't get them in stock for next year's Christmas rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, visit the Saga thing <laughs> store and see if you can find yourself a who farted helmet. Uh, no, according to the that Swedish great, Chronicle, though. we should put a shirt up there. Uh, who farted written in runes? Written runes. Yeah, nice, yeah. nice. Um, <laughs> uh, so the name comes from Eric's unusually good luck in finding favorable sea winds as a ship's captain. Ah, oh, so it has nothing to do with farting. Sorry. Uh, but That's Saxo Grammaticus. Like yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, Saxo Grammaticus names Eric, son of Ragnar, as Eric the Lonely. Aww. Or possibly Eric the Eloquent. He could be eloquent and lonely. Mm. So he's got a different kind of control over the wind if he's eloquent, though, right? He's yeah. a, more of a yeah. verbal. Right. Uh, I think that's better than Eric the Flatulent, I guess. <laughs> uh, both or neither of those nicknames may have belonged to Erica. It's pretty clear that these stories are at least semi-legendary. Uh, for that matter, we're edging into some pretty dicey territory in terms of clear connections to the Ragnarsons. I mean, mm-hmm. This Eric ends up being connected to some other legendary Erics in Ingling Saga and a few related texts. Right. Yeah, Yingling Saga is eventually going to be its own subject. But for mm. now, we should probably stick to what we know about the actual Ragnarsons. Yeah, when we put Yingling Saga on the list of things we'll get to someday. Well, we've done that because uh, people have asked us to do Yingling Yeng- right. Saga and we've always said, <laughs> one day. Right. Heims Kringla, the entire Heims Kringla someday. Yeah. Uh, but for now, we need to turn to... Fridleif Ragnarsson. So... This is one of our more obscure Ragnarsons. Fridleif. Yeah. Yeah, I, I almost forgot about him, and I think well, with good reason. Yeah, that's understandable. Uh, he's actually got a pretty solid biography, to be honest. Uh, Fridleif is one of the sons of Ragnar, who we know primarily from the account of Ragnar's life in Saxo Grammaticus, in the Gesta Denorum. Yeah, so we've mentioned before that in Ragnar's saga, Ragnar has two wives, mm-hmm. uh, Thora Fortress Heart and Auslog Sigurdsdalter. But in the Gesta... A different woman is named as Ragnar's first wife, and her name is the very obscure, you probably never heard of her, Lagertha. Yeah, where have I heard that name before? Well, it's obviously familiar to anyone who watches the Vikings program, sure. and we're both big Lagertha fans around here. Well, the story of TV Lagertha is similar to the Gesta Denorum version in some clear ways. Like her literary namesake, Lagertha has taken up the reins of power and made her way independent of Ragnar on the show. Mm-hmm. Also like the literary Lagatha, she has one son with Ragnar, although they also have two unnamed daughters. Right. But unlike the show, Lagatha's son is not Bjorn Ironsides. Right. It is Fridleif. Indeed. Now, Fridleif is a loyal son to Ragnar throughout the Gesta, and mostly works as an underking to Ragnar in Norway and elsewhere. He doesn't get a lot of attention, so we can, st- we can still cover his story pretty quickly. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, as you know, the clock's ticking. So we're going to do it's this really in like two not. minutes, I think we, three minutes. Yeah, we, we broke the clock a while back. Ah. Uh, now, we said Fridley's loyal to Ragnar, but what that means in practice is that he spends a lot of time covering for his dad's foibles or cleaning up his messes. <laughs> uh, Ragnar is not the most responsible human being. No. Well, uh, what's nice about the the story in Saxo mm-hmm. is that you get so much more of Ragnar. Yes. He, in yes. his saga, he doesn't really do much after the fairy tale stuff is over. That's true. Um, although, yeah, he's much more active and I think much more violent in Saxo. Yeah. Uh, now, at various points, uh, Fridleif is set as the Underking of Norway, the Earl of the Orkneys, and a military leader over part of Sweden. All of those uh, sort of because he's sort of standing in for Ragnar while Ragnar's off doing something else. Mm-hmm. And every other time he's mentioned, he's involved in one of his father's schemes, destroying enemies of the family or trying to stabilize the lands Ragnar conquers. Yeah, well, he also takes a minor role in his father's plan to win the Hand of Thor Fortress Heart. Mm-hmm. When Ragnar sneaks off to single-handedly kill the giant serpent holding Thor hostage, he commends his men to Fridleif and orders them to remain loyal to Fridleif in case anything goes wrong with the plan. What could go wrong with his plan? He's going to wear a pair of hairy pants. And dip it's a the cunning ice. plan. Yes. Well, as it happens, Ragnar does succeed. Sure. Um, in Saxo with the help of icy pants rather than right. tar-covered pants. Um, and we're left with an overall impression that Fridleif is a competent leader and a son who enjoys his father's trust. Given Ragnar's tendency to rub nearly everyone else the wrong way at some point, it's not a bad <laughs> legacy. It's true. Uh, although we should point out that his loyalty to his dad involves some moral compromises. Hmm. Uh, after all, by helping Ragnar to win the love of Thora, Fridleif actively helps to arrange for Ragnar to cheat on Fridleif's mother, Lagertha. Extensively so. <laughs> well, all right, that's true. But, you know, Lagertha fact, is not the, well, the I know. kindest of wives. True, true. But it's pretty clear from context that Fridleif knows exactly what Ragnar's up to. Yeah. What's not clear is what he thinks of it. I mean, does he regard his father's sexual conquests as appropriate for a Viking warlord? Uh, is he secretly seething at the lack of respect Ragnar shows to his first marriage? Or is he just playing the role of a good and loyal supporter and retainer, supporting whatever move his lord chooses? Now, obviously, we're not meant to spend a lot of time thinking about Fridleif's feelings. Oh, ouch. Uh, come on, that's true. Okay. And, and after all of this, Fridleif becomes a valued member of Team Ragnar, so it's good. Mm-hmm. He's instrumental in Ragnar's early conquests and is by his side for a little sociological experiment. A sociological experiment. Yeah. (laughs) This is not the sort of terminology we expect to hear in a conversation about Ragnar and his boys. (laughs) Well, Ragnar's time with Thora is brief but happy. And Mm -hmm. when she dies some years later, as in the saga, Ragnar is devastated. So he and Friedleif decide to engage in a little grief therapy. That is a very generous euphemism. What they decide is to go kill someone. Grief therapy. It's a classic. Mm -hmm. Beowulf advises uh, Hrothgar it is better to uh, seek vengeance than to mourn too much. So, grief therapy. The Gestadinorum's version of that is, to banish his sorrows and gain some comfort, Ragnar turned his thoughts to warfare. See? It is warrior culture therapeutic. Yeah. It's it's like primal scream therapy, except they're going to make someone else do the screaming. (laughs) Exactly. That's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, so they take along some of the younger Ragnarsons, like Sigurd and Radbard, uh, but they also decree that every father of a family should devote to his service whichever of his children he thought most contemptible, what? or any servant of his house who was lazy at his work, or of doubtful fidelity. Oh, geez. Uh, you know, as a recruiting slogan, that lacks a certain something. <laughs> Doesn't it? Give me your laziest, shiftiest, least appealing sons, and I will make an army. And don't forget the servants. And their servants. 
Yeah, this is just a little bit of garden variety cultural chauvinism on Saxo's part. Yeah. The point he's making is that Ragnar and Fridleif can prove that the feeblest of the Danish race was worth more than the strongest men of other nations. So uh, what are they planning to do with this army of the damned? Well, they're going to raid across the north and they're going to start in Britain. Mm. They attack Scotland, the Orkneys and Pictland, and in Mm. each place they're victorious. So full points to the army of the damned, I guess. Uh, The next stop is going to be northern England where Ragnar and Friedleif face off against King Hama. Yeah, now that name may not be familiar to many people, but this is an important moment for Ragnar's story because he and Friedleif kill Hama in battle. So when they leave England, Northumbria passes into the hands of Hama's son, King Ella. Yes, Ella is in Ella, the king of Northumbria, with a serpent pit. That's the one. So what Saxo does that other writers don't is to provide a deeper backstory for Ragnar's eventual death. In this version, Ella's execution of Ragnar is revenge for the death of Ella's father. But I, I think, don't the footnotes indicate that he's got all of his kings all screwed up? Yes. Oh, absolutely. No, this is this is just the text. This isn't the history at all. Yeah. I yeah. think this is, you know, like most of Saxo, it's he's more concerned with co- cobbling together all the legends than he is with producing a sort of verifiable history. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, so the execution leads to the Ragnarsons raising the great heathen army and invading England, starting with Northumbria. Yeah, Saxo is a classic example of the way that medieval writers of history sought motive for their subjects. Yes. Right. Historical narratives should teach lessons, and for that to happen, there had to be reasons for why things happened the way they had. Ragnar's death in Ella's snake pit becomes more narratively satisfying as an act of revenge. Now, hang on. Don't drag us into a digression on medieval historicism here. It's what I do. This is, supposed, this is Friedleaf's moment to shine. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, actually, this is pretty much the pinnacle of Fridley's story. <laughs> so he's, he doesn't have a whole lot of shining left to do. <laughs> Way to cut him off at the knees. Yeah, he's given charge of the Orkneys and briefly controls Norway as well. So for a while, he's the most powerful underking serving his father. And that's pretty much it for Friedleif. He drops out mm-hmm. of the narrative pretty quickly there. Uh, he's not done helping Ragnar, but he's only a supporting player from this point on and not worth talking about. Well, sure. I mean, there are a few scattered references to him in the Chronicles, but he doesn't have any more great achievements, or at least none that were recorded. Yeah, there is one minor point. Since Friedleif is the son of Lagertha and Ragnar, we can probably give him partial credit for the Vikings version of Bjorn Ironsides. Uh, I guess that's true. Um, I mean, Part certainly, of it anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly it's because of Friedleif that Bjorn is presented as the only son of their marriage. Uh, but not the only child. Right. Remember, he did have a sister, Gyda, who died in the first season of Plague or some such. True. And that's also reflected in these same texts. Fridleif has two sisters, the only daughters Saxo records for Ragnar by any of his wives or mistresses. Daughters? Mm-hmm. The Ragnar Daughters! So, this is going to require a bit of a cheat. Ragnar's Daughters. Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, putting aside that the title of the episode is The Sons of Ragnar Lothbrok, there's also the small matter that we don't know anything about Ragnar's daughters. Well, now that's not completely true. We know he had daughters for a start. Or at least we know that his legendary biography includes daughters as well as sons, right? Saxo says that Ragnar and Lagertha had two daughters. He does, yes. But he specifically says... Hang on a second. He, he says... 
here it is. So, so Lagertha catches Ragnar's eye during a battle. Ragnar recruits some women warriors to fight against a particularly nefarious king called Fro or Frey, mm-hmm. who's been forcing noble women into bondage into a brothel. Right. So, not a nice guy, Fro. I- is that all? Yeah. Why? I-, I thought you would do a to and fro joke or something, knowing you. <laughs> give me a, give me some credit. I don't always go for the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Go I, ahead. I don't know if you noticed. I was being froward there. I don't know if you, I don't know if you noticed. Yeah. See, <clears throat> how could I not notice? Now, I'm going to ignore you. Uh, so during this battle, <laughs> back to the, the origins of the daughters, Ragnar notices one of the warrior women in particular, a mm-hmm. long-haired Amazon who pushes her way to the front of the battle and fights with greater skill than Ragnar's champions. He eventually mm-hmm. wins her by killing a bear and a dog that she sets outside her door to keep him away from her. Yeah, now, in this moment, I can't tell, honestly, whether she's testing Ragnar or actually trying to kill him. I think it feels to me like there's a kind of a a Brunhilde uh, element to it, Mm -hmm. that there's these tests that he's got to pass. Right. Uh, But it also seems like she genuinely doesn't like him or want him near her. Well, that's what I got there, right? (laughs) Yeah. And, And they seem like a good match once they get together. I mean, for Ragnar, this is basically foreplay. Remember, he kills a giant <laughs> serpent to get to Thor Fortress Heart, so it's just that's par a good for the point. <laughs> right. Although I feel we're getting close to a really specific fetish here. <laughs> Murdering a guardian animal as a way of setting the mood. Ah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that and a bit of Quavassier. Some Quavassier and a dead dog at the doorstep. <laughs> oh. Mm. Actually killed one of Thor's dogs, too, did it? One of Oslog's dogs, too. Yes, he does. Oh, it, that's it terrible. Him. He really mm. does. This is his thing. This is his uh, his way of... This is his Barry Manilow album. <laughs> you see what that dead animal, baby? You know what that means. Uh, sounds uh, a little it's possibly the dubious. whitest reference I've ever made. Yeah. Anyone else would have said Barry White. <laughs> so all of this seems very morally dubious to me and, and kind of expensive. Mm. But anyway, it works. And Lagatha and Ragnar marry, possibly against her will. Right. And Saxo says, by this marriage, they had two daughters whose names have not come down to us and a son called Friedleif. Hmm. Well, all I can say is Saxo should have read more widely. Oh, so what have you got up your sleeve this time? Uh, no tricks, nothing up my sleeve. Uh, but we do know at least one daughter's name. Where do you get that? The Book of Icelandic Settlement, the Lannama book. Yes. Records a jarl in England named Steinar the Hound, Steinar Hunder, who okay. marries Elav, the daughter of Ragnar Lothbrok. Of course it would be in there. I mean, we've <laughs> talked about the Book of Settlements many times before. And for anyone who doesn't recall, it's a 12th century text which records the migration of the Norse to Iceland starting in 870. Right. So Elav Ragnar's daughter isn't recorded as leaving England, but her son, Althun Kartpole, emigrates to Iceland. And his descendants include Asgir, who's the son-in-law of Ingemund the Old in Vatnsdalasaga, and Bishop Gizur, the second bishop of Iceland. Hmm. Steinar and Elav also have another son and a daughter. Now, that's a great example of the difficulty in navigating this pastiche of history and legend in early Icelandic texts. Mm-hmm. A single text, most likely written by multiple authors, creates a seamless genealogical narrative from the daughter of a semi-legendary figure to a historically verifiable bishop of Iceland. Yeah, there's actually another point in addition to that. Which uh, is... Well, the author, or at least one of the authors of the Book of Settlements, is Ari the Learned. And a little uh, while ago, yeah, we, we just, just established... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. We Well, we established that Ari is also a descendant of a Ragnarsson. Right, Sigurd. Which means 
we obliterated the line between real history and cultural myth a while ago. Yeah. Now, Ragnar and his family have a habit of doing that. All right. Well, enough with the daughters, because there's <laughs> really nothing there. <laughs> Who's next? Radbard and Dunwatt Ragnarsson. Ah, another twofer. Mm-hmm. We're doing Radbard and Dunwatt at the same time. Yeah, I mean, they're mostly treated as a team in the literature, so I figured we might as well honor that tradition. Well, I mean, actually, it makes sense. And really, the first thing to say about them is that Radbard and Dunwatt are more or less stand-ins for Eric and Agnar Ragnarsson. So uh, just go back and listen to the previous sections. And- no. <laughs> you should probably explain yourself because it's not quite that simple. Well, we talked uh, about Eric and Agnar about 10 minutes ago, and mm-hmm. they're the two sons of Thora Fortressheart and Ragnar Lothbrok, but in some sources, mainly Saxo Grammaticus, Eric and Agnar are the sons from a different relationship, and Thora's two sons are Radbard and Dunwatt instead. Right. Now, we have to stop and say these names are starting to sound slightly made up. I, <laughs> I know they're real, I know they're from the text, but they have the feel of names made up of bits of real names, like mm. Tom John or Sam Narek. I think we said earlier that Radbard sounds like a villain in Dis- in a Disney movie. Right, right. Yeah. And I, honestly, Tom John and Sam Narek, I'm <laughs> fairly certain that you just made those up. Oh, now. I'm, you know what? I'm going to tell you where I found those. I'm going to leave uh, okay. it to our listeners to educate you about where those came from. Oh, okay. uh, All right. Get us back to Ratbeard and Dancelot. So so these two are – no, it's it's Radbard and Dunwatt. Yeah. Anyway, they're, they're among on. the gang of sons Ragnar hauls around with him in the Gesta Denorum. They fight alongside their bro- their younger brothers, Ivar the Boneless and Sigurd Snake in the Eye in Norway, and later accompany Ragnar to Scotland. Now, this is the raid where Ragnar is deliberately using the worst men he can find, right? Yeah, it's his rehabilitation program for troubled Danish youths. It's a youth. He's <laughs> <laughs> multiple youths. And, and it works beautifully. They defeat a combined force of Scots and Picts, and Ragnar then places Radbard and Sigurd in control of the newly gained lands. Now, wait, you mentioned Picts. Uh, you made a reference to Pictland earlier, and I meant to bring it up then. Well, they're, the, they're a, a tribe of Celts. Um, right. Saxo's not always precise in his naming of non-Scandinavian peoples. Okay, so Redburn is an earl in Scotland now. What about Dingbat? Why didn't he get a land rule like his brother? <laughs> Dunwatt. Dunwatt <laughs> continues to travel with Ragnar. Uh-huh. He helps to install Fridleif and Bjorn as underkings of Norway. And later they make Eric Windhat the lord of Sweden. <laughs> Classy. I couldn't help it. I like that we're I like that we're raising the bar here on our uh, our intellectual yeah. achievement in this podcast. Yeah. Well, no one's gonna get this far into this episode, so that's I an excellent it's, point. It's fine if we right. let a little gas the occasional, joke sound. Right. The occasional uh, flatulent joke, just for those yeah. who got this far. Yeah. Now together they harry Ragnar's rival Harold the Dane to Germany, mm-hmm. where they force him to renounce all claim to his land. And they then purge Ragnar's lands of Harold's supporters, which involves torturing a fair number of them to death, which is, yeah. you know, yeah, Torture standard. by Vikings is good. Uh, so <laughs> Dungbot presumably turns out to be one of Ragnar's enforcers. Uh-huh. Although we should be clear, this is mostly speculative. Uh, Saxo reports this whole thing, but he doesn't actually mention Dunwatt by name. Usually some combination of Fridleif, Bjarne, Sigurth, and Radbard are taking charge of Ragnar's new conquered lands, while the rest work in shifts to support Ragnar's agenda. Yeah, that's fair. Dunwatt's almost certainly part of the team, but he doesn't seem to play a terribly important role. Right. Now, as his brothers are being set up as kings and earls all over the place, Dunnikin is the one tasked with riding along with dear old dad. Dunnikin. Yes. (laughs) 
Dunwat. Oh. Dunwat. <laughs> Hear me out on this. That's what I said. Or, or he, he's being saved up for something really special. Isn't sure. that possible? Something mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Something. He gets killed be- in Scotland. Yeah. He, I was getting to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ragnar and several of his sons, including both Red Band and Bumshot, go on a <sighs> raid in the Orkneys and end up engaging in a three-day battle with King Muriel of the Scots. The Scots are defeated and Muriel is killed, but both Radbard and Dunwat fall in the battle. Well, they died as they lived, side by side, without being very important. Damn. Ingwer and Husto Ragnarsson. All right. Ingvar and Husto, you say. That's right. Uh, these two are mainly famous outside of Scandinavia, where they're recognized as two of the most dangerous of the Ragnarsons. Wait a second. Husto is a leader of the great heathen army and a man mm-hmm. of great personal strength. Now you're not listening. Ingvar, on the other hand, is sometimes hey. reported to be disabled, possibly with some kind of ailment affecting his legs. All right. Stop. Stop. I see something, what you're doing here. you want to say, Andy? Well, you know perfectly well that Ingvar and Husto are just the Anglo-Saxon misnomers for Ivar and Ube Ragnarsson. Well, I mean, yes, all right. That's probably true. It is true. It is true. <laughs> and we already eliminated Ulvi Ragnarsson for the same reason. So what are we you doing? You eliminated Ulvi. Uh, but this is a little different. This pair, who we should be clear are almost certainly Ivar and Ube, are widely attested in their own right. For example, when Abbo of Fleury writes the authoritative source for medieval England on the life of St. Edmund, he includes the account of Edmund's death at the hands of the leaders of the great heathen army, and he gives their names as Ingwar and Husto. But it's it's just an anglicized version of Ivar and Ube. So why? Yes, sure. This is for next episode, uh, John. Oh, oh, and when Alfrich of Ainsham writes his version, he uses the names Hingwar and Hubba. Yeah. Uh, Alfrich does add they were accompanied by a third leader. But since that leader's name is The Devil, we can probably assume he's editorializing. <laughs> so you're saying that when it comes to naming the Ragnarsons, the devil's in the details. <laughs> I wasn't saying that because that's terrible. Uh, are you proud of yourself for that one? No. <laughs> so ignoring In fact, I'm that. In retrospect, uh, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> what we can learn from surveying all these texts is that the only constant is inconsistency. Well, I mean, it's true that the English chroniclers use English and Norse versions of the names inconsistently, so it's hard to know what they're up to with these names sometimes. But we can put those names back together and compile them under a single Ragnarsson. Maybe, but the writers don't always make it easy for us. For example, in the Tale of the Ragnarssons, Ivar, Ingvar, and Husto all appear together as three brothers. You're just being difficult on purpose. A little, yeah. Uh, Now, we know that Ingvar and Ingvar are anglicized versions of Ivar's name. The trick is that it's not always clear that Norse writers knew that. Mm-hmm. Which means... Oh, if we, uh, so if a Norse writer is using an anglicized source, they might mistake the English Ingvar for a separate person for Ivar. Conceivably, yeah. And the same might go for Husto or Huba and Ube. They're all dialectical versions of the same name and probably the same Ragnarsson. But to contemporary sources, they might end up as different people. And so their stories then might diverge as well. That's just it's clumsy a, scholarship, John. Well, I mean, it's a little like what we mentioned with uh, Houston and Hastings. Right? And we'll see this again next time with Fitzeric Ragnarsson, who may or may not also be Havdan Ragnarsson. Yeah. Yeah, it's true that the problem of names can get really, really vexed. And that's not helped by the ways in which Scandinavian and non-Scandinavian groups tended to misunderstand each other. 
Mm-hmm. But we've talked before about the problem non-Scandinavians had with trying to make sense of Vikings' loose command structure. Sure. Sometimes they clearly don't know who's in charge of the Vikings. Their best guesses are sometimes more confusing than just saying, I, I don't know. <laughs> so at the best of times, their records of the various Ragnarsons is likely to get a little jumbled. Add in language differences, and it's not surprising that the wires sometimes get crossed. Right. See, that's exactly why I wanted to mention these two, if only briefly. I agree. These two probably don't count toward our total, but it's hard to be sure, and that's the point. So your point is that including these two is pointless. No. My, my point <laughs> is that the Ragnarsons are a collection of legends, historical records, and literary echoes that built up over centuries. Yeah. And it doesn't help that the Vikings weren't writing anything down at this at this time in history. Absolutely true. But the Anglo-Saxons were. So the Viking, the later uh, Scandinavians are relying on English sources more often than right. not and French sources. And that leads to all kinds of confusion. Right. So you have the oral memories of the Norse being supplemented by English sources, which Norse writers are then reading and getting confused by because of the differences in the names. Which makes tallying up Ragnarsons rather difficult. Right. So it's pointless. It's possible that there are over a dozen of them. (laughs) It's also possible that there were four or five of them, and the rest are inventions or unrelated men or reiterations of the same few guys with different names. Sure. And each of those men, however many there may actually have been, and whether or not they were actually biological sons of Ragnar Lothbrok, exist in the source text at the center of a cloud of half-remembered stories, misinformation, myth, and actual history. Some of them, like Sigurd or Bjorn, seem to be more or less consistent. Others, like Halston or Ivar, are the result of so many overlapping texts and inconsistent narratives that they become almost unrecoverable. Yeah. We're left with a composite image rather than one recognizable individual. And when we're dealing with the Ragnarsons, there are a number of different factors that play into how they're remembered, not least Mm -hmm. of which is cultural perspective. A Norseman who thinks of Sigurd's snake in the eye as the ancestor of a line of kings is going to think of the Ragnarsons very differently than an Englishman raised on stories of the deaths of King Alla and Edmund. Right. Sure, of course. That'd be a hell of a bedtime story. All right. One more story before bed, children. Should we do the time Ingwar and Husto carved a blood eagle on the back of King Alla? Or how King Edmund's severed head called out in the night? Oh, King Edmund, King Edmund. <laughs> no, I, I'd rather kids learned that kind of thing at home instead of on the streets, though, you know? Sure. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh, it's also possible that the entire family is more legend than reality. Completely unhistorical, you mean? Mm. Yeah. I'm not really sure that I want to go that far. Yeah, no. I, I mean, they're closer to something like the collection of stories of English outlaws that eventually turn into the Robin Hood tradition. Okay. Yeah, th- that kind of thing I would allow. Uh, you're very kind. Mm. The, there are these stories like Hereward the Wake or Fulk Warren that are mostly historical, and then other stories that are a mix of historical figures and invented narrative. But they all participate in a matrix of stories about sort of the the uh, the noble outlaw. And mm-hmm. eventually that story matrix finds its fullest expression in the Robin Hood stories, right? Yes. One guy who represents many, many people's stories. Mm. So, so by that logic, the Ragnarsons are a result of the combined reality of Viking raids, the confusion of non-Scandinavians about who's who among the Norse raiders, and the accumulated legends of a century's worth of famous Viking warriors. More or less, yeah. Uh, I'd add that there's a fair amount of broader folkloric and cultural storytelling elements mixed in there as well. I mean, remember Ivar's cow wrestling and Sigurd's snake eye, right? 
uh, and fighting serpents that are guarding yep. young damsels in distress. Absolutely. And that yeah. repeated motif of Ragnar killing a, a guardian animal before he reaches his wife. Yeah. But for now, we can say with some certainty that there's somewhere between zero and 100% accuracy <laughs> to the Ragnarsson stories. That's a bold stand, but I'm willing to take it. So uh, we're firmly agreed that we are not sure about any of this. Right. You realize this is why people hate academics, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably an appropriate point for us to stop. When right. we've accomplished Before we make nothing, it any worse. <laughs> we've already accomplished so much nothing that it's time to move on. <laughs> right. And amazingly, we're only through the first half of this story. Yes, we are going to need a second episode to deal with the more famous sons of Ragnar, the boys who are currently on the show, Ube, Bjorn Ironsides, Fritzerk, and Ivar the Boneless. I am really looking forward to those. Yes, so we will be back in a couple of weeks with that episode, and then we'll be returning to our exploration of the sagas of the Icelanders. Yeah, until then, please let us know what you thought of all this. Uh, do you have a favorite Ragnarsson or Ragnar daughter? Did we miss a favorite story of yours? Who would have a favorite Ragnar daughter? Well, I think, you know, Elav is probably the one, the, the only Gouda. favorite possible. Remember that time Gouda uh, was coughing? Right, or possibly Gouda, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to know more about Fridleaf or Houston or Dunwat? Uh, you can tell nope. us all about it on our Facebook page, where we're Saga Thing Podcast, or on Twitter, at Saga Thing Pod, or through email, where we're Saga Thing Podcast at gmail.com. Or stop by our website, www.sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com to catch up on older episodes of the show or to look through our extra content. And a special thank you to Logan Kendall for letting us use his cover of Fever Rays If I Had a Heart to close out our Vikings-themed saga brief. You can find a link to his Bandcamp page in our show notes. And if you enjoy this cover, you can find more of his music there. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye for now. This will never end cause I want more, more, gimme more, gimme more, this will never end cause I want more, more, gimme more, gimme
crushed and filled with all I found underneath and inside just to come around more give me 